think it's still morning, so I can say good morning to you all. Bless you in the name of the Lord. Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to say something to you. It may seem obvious, but sometimes that which is obvious we can miss. So this is what I want to say. Preaching is an act of faith. The message is received by faith. The preparation is by faith. And the delivery is by faith. And as with the preacher, so with those who receive the preaching. For this message to be beneficial to you, you must also receive it by faith. In other words, you believe that as you hear the message, you will hear God's voice. You believe that God will speak to you. This is a joint enterprise. We're all in this together. As I deliver the message by faith, so you must receive it by faith. Will you do that? Amen. Amen. So we can begin. So, where shall we begin? Let's begin at the beginning. My message today was prompted by an article I read at the beginning of the year. It was in a Christian magazine and it was a review of the year 2016. And it listed many of the main events, important events of 2016 and it made comment about them. But one particular item it spoke to me. It sort of leapt out at the page at me. It was near the beginning, in fact I think it was the first item and it was the genesis of my message today. And this is what the article said. The piece was subtitled Brexit, Trump and Post-Truth Politics. Mm -hmm. And this is what it said. The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2016 was post-truth. From fake news websites to politicians playing fast and loose with facts, the phrase has become a sadly accurate summary of the divisive tone that marked the EU referendum and US election campaigns. And that spoke to me, because I believe that truth is important. As a person, as a Christian, as someone who teaches, the truth is of vital importance to me. And this concept of post-truth is a very widespread and persistent concept in the world today. Are you all familiar with the concept of post-truth? If not, I'll read how the Oxford Dictionary defines post-truth. The definition is relating to circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than emotional 
appeals. In other words, in my own words, post-truth, the age of post-truth means that the truth has become of less importance in the world today. What's more important are people's opinions and attitudes. You can see how serious that is. Without the truth, we're really lost. The truth is very important to determine what is true. Let me give you some examples of this post-truth age that we live in. I was listening to the radio. It was just, I think, just after President Trump had been inaugurated. And there was a phone-in on LBC. And they were discussing President Trump. They were, the subject was his veracity, his truthfulness. Because there had been reports that he'd told lies during his campaign during 2016. So they were discussing this on the radio. People were phoning in. And one man phoned in and he said something rather remarkable. I thought it was remarkable. If I'd heard it a year ago, well, I'd have probably been... wouldn't have believed it, but because I'm familiar with this idea of post-truth and how the world is today, it wasn't surprising, but it was still remarkable. This man phoned in and he said... He wasn't really concerned whether President Trump had lied or not as long as he did what he said he would do. Well, that's remarkable because that's self-contradictory. <laughs> He's not going to do what he says if, if he doesn't tell the truth. But I thought that was remarkable, that this man could, could phone into a radio station and said he didn't really care whether the President of the United States told the truth or not. I mean, a year ago, no one would have thought that was possible. But this is the age that we live in. Truth has become devalued. There is an, another rumour circulating in the United States that President Obama wasn't born in the United States. And if that was true, obviously, he would have been ineligible to be president because you have to be born in the States to be the president. And there was this rumour circulating that he wasn't born in the States. Those who supported him, defended him, and his opponents attacked him for this. Till eventually, a copy of a birth certificate was broadcast or printed, which showed that he was born in Hawaii, which, as all you, we all know, is part of the United States, which shows that he was eligible to be president. You would have thought that would have stopped all the rumours, but it didn't. As soon as that was printed and published, a new rumour started. It said that the birth certificate was fake. So we live in a world where truth is being devalued to such a point that it's, people have a difficulty in knowing what is true and what is not true. That's the world we live in. During a presidential campaign, there was a rumour on the internet that the Pope was supporting Donald Trump. It wasn't true, of course, but many people believed it. Truth is becoming devalued. It's difficult to determine what is true and what is not true. Some people believe that the moon landing didn't actually take place, that it was set up in the desert of, in America. Some people believe that the Holocaust didn't happen. Some people believe that the, twin, the attack on the Twin Towers 
was orchestrated by the American government so that they could start their war against Iraq. It's difficult sometimes to determine what is true and what is not true. And that's very dangerous for us as Christians and for people in the world. Let me define what truth is according to the Oxford Dictionary. It says, the quality or state of being true, that which is true or in, in accordance with fact or reality, a fact or belief that is accepted as true. So why is truth so important? Well, without the truth, I'm unable to make good decisions, to make right judgments, to determine what is right and what is wrong. Without the truth, I'm drowning in a sea of instability. I can't determine what is right, what is wrong, what I should do. The truth determines how I think and my attitudes. My attitudes determine my behaviour. My behaviour determines my conduct and my conversation. My conduct and conversation determine my destiny. So you see how important the truth is. It's important to know what is true and what is not true. My very life depends on knowing what is true. Let's turn to John 10.10. 10. This is the truth. John 10.10. 10. We're going to look at the second part of the verse first. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. One of the reasons Jesus came to the earth was to die, that he might give us life. And not only to give us life, but to give us life in all of its abundance. He came to give us fullness of life. That was his purpose in coming. But if you look at the first part of the verse, you'll see that we have an adversary. Someone who is working against the purpose of God. Someone who's working against the purpose of why Jesus came. Jesus says, in the first part of that verse, the thief, who represents the devil, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. The purpose of the devil is to steal the life that God brings to give us. His intention is to steal that life and to destroy us. The scripture tells us that Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. But yet, 
the devil is still at work in the world. How does he steal, kill and destroy? One of his main methods, his modus operandi, is deception. He steals from us by deceiving us. He destroys us by deceiving us. If you go right back to the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, we can see that God created a good, a good world. After God had created everything, he said it was good. He created a man and a woman and placed them in that garden. And that was good. But unfortunately, the devil had a plan to destroy what God had created. And he came and he spoke to Eve. And his first method was to place doubt in her heart. He said, did God really say? Well, yes, God had really said. But what had he really said? After a while, as Eve conversed with the devil, it seemed she was unsure about what God had really said. So there came a doubt. And instead of going to Adam, or going to God, to make certain of what God had said, she continued to speak with the devil. And as she spoke, doubt settled in her heart. And eventually, as the doubt settled there, the devil contradicted what God had said. God had said not to eat of the fruit. The devil said, no, 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 that's wrong. You won't surely die. If you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And this sounded good to Eve. <coughs> she was deceived. Instead of settling on what God had said, she received what the devil had said. And by doing that, she was deceived. She deceived her husband and everything was lost. The relationship with God was fractured. In fact, the devil said that their eyes would be opened and in the immediate aftermath of that, what did they do? They hid. What's the point of having your eyes open if you've got to hide? Complete opposite of what they were expecting. They hid from God. So the devil works through deception. And I believe that's why there's so much deception in the world today. It's a work of the devil. He works in deception. As a fish swims in the water and birds fly in the sky, the devil operates in deception. That's where he works. Jesus calls him the father of lies. The liar 
from the beginning. You see, our problem with the devil isn't working out when he's lying. Our problem with the devil is when we listen to him, because he's always lying. In fact, if we go to Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus speaking to his disciples, just before he goes to his crucifixion, he says this, For false Christs and false prophets will appear, and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. The elect are those chosen by God. That's us. To deceive even the elect, if that were possible, see, I've told you ahead of time. So the devil's purpose from the beginning in Genesis to the very end is to deceive. His purpose is to deceive God's people and thereby to steal, to kill and to destroy. So, this sounds all rather depressing. <laughs> is there any good news? Have I got any good news for you? Well, yes I have. There's an alternative to all this. Turn with me to John 18, 38. What's the alternative to the post-truth society? What's the alternative to the deception of the devil? John 18, 38. In this passage, Jesus stands before Pilate. They're having a conversation. I'm just looking where I shall start because time is against us, so I don't want to take too much time. Anyway, in the course of the conversation, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And I guess it's a question we must all ask. What is truth? How do we define and determine what is true? Jesus didn't answer Pilate at this time. But early on in John, Jesus gave two answers. First of all, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The truth is defined by who Jesus is. He is the embodiment of what is true. If you see Jesus, you see what is true. If you know Jesus, you know what is true. That's one answer he gave. Later on, he gives another answer. He's in the upper room with the disciples just before he goes out to be crucified and he's praying for them John 17 <coughs> Jesus prays for himself and his disciples 
He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ you have sent. Sorry, I read the, the ver- wrong verse there. That comes later on in my message. Beg your pardon. Near to the end of his prayer, in John seventeen seventeen, Jesus says this of the disciples, speaking to his Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus determines truth as the word of God. That is our truth. So we're not living in a post-truth society. We live in the age of God's truth. So be encouraged. We have God's truth. That is our foundation. And I want to have a look at three aspects of the word of God as God's truth. And I've based it on Psalm 119. A verse from Psalm 119, verse 89. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, you know that it speaks of God's word in all its aspects. God's commandments, his precepts, his word. All those words are used in Psalm 119. And at the centre of it, we find verse 89 the midpoint of Psalm 119 it says your word O Lord is eternal it stands firm in the heavens and we're going to have a look at three aspects of God's truth as determined by this verse your word O Lord is eternal it stands firm in the heavens. Your word, O Lord, it's a personal word, a relational word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It's an eternal word, a reliable word. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It's an unchangeable word, a consistent word. This is the word of truth, the word of God. Okay. Your word, O Lord. It's a personal word, a relational word. Let's turn to Hebrews 1. 1. God's word is relational. It's a personal word. Bear with me. (coughs) Hebrews 1.1 In the past, God spoke. He's a speaking God. Why did he speak? Well, in the beginning, he spoke to create. God said, let there be. And there was. 
His word is creative. But also his word is personal, it's relational. If you remember the garden, it relates that God came into the garden in the cool of the day to speak to Adam and Eve. God speaks because he wants to relate to us. He wants to have communion with us. He wants to share with us. He wants to share himself and his heart with us. So he speaks. You cannot have relationship without communication. Gloria's my wife. If we'd never communicated, we wouldn't have a relationship. And we have to continue communicating for our relationship to continue and to develop. God speaks to us because he wants to relate to us. He wants us to have a relationship with us. So he speaks to us. He shares his heart. The scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it is with God. He speaks out of his heart because he wants to share who he is. His plans, his purposes, his desires, what he wants for us and from us. So he speaks to us. So, in the past, God spoke. Spoke to Adam and Eve. Spoke to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua. Who else did he speak to? The judges, the rulers, the kings, to David. To... He c continues to speak. He spoke through his servants, the prophets. God speaks because he wants to share his heart. Without God speaking, we wouldn't know him. I only know God because he speaks. Do you, know, you realise that, don't you? God communicates, so I know him. If God didn't speak, he would be a force out there somewhere. That's why people worship the sun, the moon, trees. That's why in Athens there was a statue to the unknown God. They had an idea that some force was in the world, but they didn't know God because they didn't hear him. God speaks so that I understand him. How do I know that God loves me? Except he tells me. How do I know that he died for me? Unless he tells me. How do I know that his grace and his mercy is available to me? Except he tells me. I know God because he speaks to me. So, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is God's final word. Final word on what? On everything. Whatever God has to say, he says it in Jesus. Whatever answer God has for us we find it in Jesus he is God's final and complete word he's returned to heaven yes I know but he continues to speak to us through his word and by his spirit his word testifies to him his spirit testifies of him so Jesus continues to speak to us. He's not a far off God. 
He comes and speaks to us. Romans 10.8 says the word is near you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. It's not a distant word. It's here. It's within me. He continues to speak with, with me and to me. Isaiah 55.11 says, My word that goes out from my mouth. You see, it's a personal word. When it says go out from my mouth, it's personalised it. God isn't sending a messenger. He says it's my word which goes forth from my mouth. The source of that message, even though it comes through others, it comes from God. It's personal to God. Mm. Jeremiah 1.12 says, I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. I am watching over my word to perform it. You can never separate God from his word. He watches over it. He maintains it. God never speaks and then leaves and let his word drift. No, 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 no. He watches over his word. He pays close attention to what he said. That's why quite often you'll find in the scriptures people remind God of what he said. He said, you said this, you said that. Because God watches over his word. He can't be separated from him. He, he he's, keeps his word. So if God has spoken to you, remind him of his word. Remember what he says. Because he's faithful to his word. Matthew 4.4 4. Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God sustains us. It keeps us alive. Without the word of God, we have no life. That is his word. It's a personal word. It's a relational word. Because he loves us. He wants to share his heart with us so that we may know him, so that we may reciprocate. He speaks to us. Your word, O oh Lord, a personal word, a relational word. Your word, O oh Lord, is eternal. It's an eternal word, a reliable word. Let's turn to Matthew 24 again. There's so much we can say, but we have to skip through the scriptures. You can take these scriptures home and read through them and see how God is speaking to you and what he has to say to you. We're only speaking generally about the word of God. He says many specific things to us. I'm just laying down this general concept that the word of God is truth and God communicates with us and to us for a purpose. Now Matthew 24 is sometimes a difficult passage to understand 
Many people have problems with it. The important thing to understand is that Jesus is answering two questions from the disciples about two different events in two different timescales in history. And parts of the chapter, they seem to jump between those two ideas. The first event is the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The second event is the end of history at the return of Jesus. And he's answering two questions to his disciples. We're not going to go into that. It's not relevant for what we're saying today. But in this chapter, Jesus gives a warning or warnings, a promise and an assurance. If you look at Matthew 24, 4-25, Jesus is warning his people, the disciples and us, about events at the fall of Jerusalem and also signs of the end of the age. And he paints a very bleak picture. Listen to some of the things that will be happening. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. There's that word again, watch out. Deception is very dangerous. So watch out. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Deception again. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most or many will grow cold. But he who stands, she who stands firm to the end, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And Jesus goes on, if you have a look at the following verses, you'll see that he mentions other calamities that will come on the world at the end of the age. And he's warning us to beware and not to be deceived because sometimes we can be deceived by our circumstances if I'm going through a difficult time things aren't working out for me I can think "Hmm, well maybe God doesn't care about me maybe his promises aren't true maybe I was wrong to believe what he said after all I know he said he loves me he cares for me But look at my situation. Why is this happening? Has God forsaken me? Has he forgotten me? No, he hasn't. God hasn't forsaken or forgotten you. Because he has a promise. Your circumstances are temporary. It's for a time. But if you look, have a look at verse 26. of Matthew 24 what does he say so if anyone tells you there he is 
out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the, upper, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will get, gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. <coughs> At that time, the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So Jesus gives a promise. When you see these signs, don't be despaired, don't be disheartened. He's given us a promise. At a point in history, he will come again. He will receive us. So don't let your circumstance speak to you. Listen to what God says. His word is truth. Amen. 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 And not only does he give a promise, he gives us his assurance. What does he say? Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, verse 32. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And this is very important, what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Amen. That's his promise. That's his assurance. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. When you see everything becoming unstable, and we are living in a very unstable world, we don't know one, from one day to the next what will happen. If you're familiar with what, the events in the news, you'll see of wars, rumours of wars, disasters, you read of Iraq and Syria, what's taking place there. And many people don't know from one day to the next what life will bring to them. But Jesus has a promise and an assurance to us. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our situation, he says his word will never pass away. What he has promised we are assured of. What he says, he will do. Isaiah says, the word of the Lord stands forever. That's our foundation. That's our assurance. That's our trust. Let's rely on him. Let's build our lives on that firm foundation of the word of God. Because it will stand. When everything else has crumbled and has passed, the word of the Lord stands forever. So your word, O Lord, is eternal. It's an eternal word. It's a reliable word. It stands firm in the heavens. It's an 
unchangeable word, a consistent word. As God is, so is his word. He is a personal God. His word is personal. He is an eternal God. His word is eternal. He is an unchangeable God. His word is unchangeable. Malachi 3.6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Isaiah 46.11, what I have said, that will I bring about. God confirms his word with an oath. He cannot lie. So we can depend upon his word. Psalm 138 says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Why has he exalted his name or his names and his word? Well, if God exalts something, you know it's very precious. It's very important to him. So why has he exalted his name? Because his names speak of his character, his identity. God is known by his names. He is El Shaddai, Lord the Almighty. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. He is the Redeemer. He is the first and last. He is the Amen. He is the root and the offspring of David. He is the bright and morning star. He is the merciful God. He is known by his names. His names speak of who he is, so he exalts his names. We know who he is because of his names. His names tell us who he is, his character. Why has he exalted his word above all things? Because his word speaks of his purpose, his plans his desires, his intentions. So he exalted them above all things. God wants us to know him. We know him because of his word. He identifies with us because of his word. So he's exalted them. He's exalted his word above all things. So let's take hold of his word. Let's receive it. It's an eternal word. It's a personal word. It's an unchangeable word. So, we're not living in a world of post-truth. We're living 
in a world of God's truth. So embrace it. Receive it. Let it change you. Let it transform you. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Randolph. That was uh, really encouraging.